You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And joining me today on the podcast is Matt Schrader, who's a China analyst at the Alliance for Security, Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Thanks so much for joining me, Matt. How are you doing today? Yeah, you know, doing okay. Slowly going insane in quarantine, but other than that, everything's great. Yeah, all things considered. Um, but no, thanks yeah. a lot for having uh, f- for coming on the show today. Um, so, listeners, the reason I have Matt on is uh, because he's the author of a fascinating new report uh, published through his organization uh, called Friends and Enemies: A Framework for Understanding Chinese Political Interference in Democratic Countries. And you know, surprise, surprise, this is a hot topic around the world, uh, not least here in the United States, because we're in an election year and there have been accusations, including from President Trump himself, that China is seeking to interfere in the election. There have been credible accusations from other parts of the American intelligence community, political apparatus. This is a big issue in Europe. It's a big issue in Australia, New Zealand, in Southeast Asia, in South Asia, in Northeast Asia. Uh, certainly, you look around the world and you begin to see a Chinese party state apparatus that is looking at the way in which it can seek influence um, to uh, better accomplish its means around the world. But I'm not going to tell you about that because I'm not the expert. Matt is. Um, so, Matt, without further ado, I did want to give you an opportunity to first introduce yourself before we get into our conversation today. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into, um, I guess, how you found yourself uh, writing this report on uh, Chinese political interference in uh, 2020. Well, I appreciate you calling me the expert. It's, it's a little... Um uh, it's great to be here with you right now because I've um, been a fan of the podcast and your work for such a long time, and I don't think I've seen anybody who knows so much about such a shockingly wide range of things um, on Asia um, other than you. So it's it's really a privilege to be able to talk with you a little bit about this and subject the report to some, some really informed questioning. Um, how did I end up here? I, I lived in China for 10 years after I graduated college. Um, I finished university and studied Chinese a little bit during my university and spent some time in China then um, and felt like I had really, I hadn't really finished the job of learning the language um, and also having gotten the first kind of um, taste of the country at that point. Um, it was sort of like this whole world had opened up to me. Um, so I, I just wanted to learn more. I wanted to get my Chinese really good. I wanted to understand as much as I could about this place. Um, and also, I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do with myself uh, at the age of 23. So I uh, packed up and moved to Beijing. And uh, with the idea, I'd be coming back in two or three years for grad school. And I ended up coming back 10 years later uh, for grad school. Um, at that point, it had gotten pretty clear in like 2017, 2018, that um you know, China was really changing the game globally, you know, in 2013-14, you'd seen the construction of islands in the South China Sea, um, and any number of other sort of really concerning forms of assertive behavior um, that had emerged, you know, during my time in the country. Um, and so I, I felt like uh, one way I could contribute usefully was by trying to help everyone figure out, you know, make some sense of all of these new, more um, assertive or coercive forms of, of um, PRC behavior we were seeing around the world. And so did a graduate degree in Asian studies, uh, did sort of the internship into research assistant thing that you do in DC um, while getting steadily more interested in these, you know, what are now called like PRC influence or PRC interference, this kind of aspect of uh, PRC geo you know, geopolitics. Um, 
And that ended up with me um, at the place I am now, writing the report that uh, just came out. All right. Well, no, that's a that's a I think that's a familiar story for a lot of people. Um, I guess that find themselves turning into you know the so-called China hand. Um, <laughs> obviously, yeah. I think there is a fair range of variants in the paths that people do take uh, to end up where they go. But yeah, that, that's uh, certainly yeah. I think I, I can see that. I mean, especially if you were in China. Um, and just witness firsthand many of these changes uh, with the increased assertiveness under uh, Xi Jinping, especially, um, completely makes sense. So you know that you yeah, it's like uh, like uh, what white guy becomes fascinated with Asia <laughs> news at eleven. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, as long as long as the work is solid, um, and, and in this case it is. Uh, yeah, know, I have I have no issues. Um, but you know, let's uh, let's dig in a little to PRC influence. You know, I'm I'm going to be a little cheeky here. I mean. Look, we talk about PRC, uh, influence-seeking, interference, uh, different things, I think. There's actually maybe a little bit of a distinction between those two terms that's maybe worth talking about. But I mean, you know, this is something that all countries do, right? I mean, every every country wants to seek influence overseas. The United States does it Mm -hmm. in different ways, right? I mean, you could could talk about things like even non-governmental efforts like Hollywood Mm -hmm. does effectively mm-hmm. granting the U.S. influence overseas in many ways. Uh, and I know I'm being cheeky here because um, obviously the way in which China seeks influence um, is quite different. So maybe to kind of ground our conversation today, uh, do you want to just kind of, you know, just take care of my cheekiness here by just giving us yeah, a clear no, definition no, no, I, of, of what, what PRC influence is in your view? Yeah, I, I don't. I actually don't think that's a cheeky question at all. And it's, it's one of the reasons I'm really glad to talk with you because I think that's like, that's a really smart question to start off with. It's like the fundamental question when you're writing a report like this and thinking about these things is like, you know, how is this, how is this different from anything the the U.S. does? Um, because I, I mean, you can sort of say that the United States or demo, other democratic countries are, you know, better or morally, morally superior or whatever, but like, um, I, I think you need to be able to, to, make an argument as to why this stuff is different and more concerning. Um, the, the way that I tend to think about it um, is through a very kind of, um, I don't know, almost like, like founding fathers kind of lens where, um, uh, you know, the, the thing that really separates the things that the American or other democratic governments do uh, from what the party does is, is simply constraints on the exercise of power. Um, that, uh, you know, every country has people who covet power, who covet wealth, who are ambitious, who will climb over other people to get what they want or to keep their position. Um, you know, China is, is not really any different from any other country in that respect. Um, the difference between that system and the one that we have here or in other democratic countries uh, is simply that those sorts of people face a lot more constraints on how they're able to use their power in the United States or in Europe. Um, You know, there's a lot more ways that they're called to be accountable. Um, There are a lot more ways where they're called to be transparent um, and a lot more ways that when, when they do something that regular people would judge to be morally reprehensible, um, a lot of, you know, a lot more ways that behavior can be called to light. Um, and so when there is no, you know, it's, it's when there's no sunlight, um, you know, it's the saying sunlight's the best disinfectant when there's, when there's no sunlight, I think, you know, power tends to exercise itself in ways that, 
can tend more towards the coercive uh, and more towards what we would consider to be um, unseemly forms of influence. Um, and so I, I think that because the party, the, the CCP, um, operates in a much less transparent, much more authoritarian milieu, um, it is accustomed to exercising power that way. And so we should not be surprised to see that, um, you know, some of the characteristics I'm going to get into a little bit are forming an increasingly important and salient part of how the party is, is attempting to carve out space for its continued international rise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think I, th- I think that's a very uh, helpful um, definition. And you know, you also uh, you also do the thing that I think um, a lot of responsible analysts in this area do, which is uh, talk about party influence or party interference mm-hmm. as opposed to the more blanket term uh, that leads to some problematic associations um, yeah. in societies with the Chinese diaspora of talking about Chinese yes. influence. Um, I don't know if you want to say a little bit about that because you do talk about I, that in the report, and I think that's yeah, a really yeah, important yeah. issue to discuss. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I'm, I, we're also going to get into that a little bit more with one of the characteristics. But this this particular point, I'm really glad you. I'm really, really happy you brought it up because you know you you see people tend to talk about how you know the Chinese are coming to get us, or it's the Chinese government, or the you know, Chinese people, and it's it's absolutely um, it's not it's not China, it's not Chinese. It it is this this party. Um, and not even really the entire party. It's more like the small cadre of people who form the the ruling elite of this party, um, who I think we need to be particularly concerned about because they're they're relatively committed to and reap the benefits from a system whose values are are very very different from our own. Um, and so it's important to be really careful about how we. We talk about that um, because all of our societies in the West and even just in democracy, democracies everywhere, it's not just a Western thing. Um, you know, we all have histories of, of racism, frankly, mm-hmm. um, really scary racism. And, you know, I talk all the time and hear all the time um, from folks of, you know, folks whose families are originally from Asia who live in the United States or Europe or Australia, where they talk about their uh that they, it's, they say, you know, your nationality feels contingent. Um, you know, it, it's um, the permanent foreigner syndrome where uh, you're not allowed by the people of your country to feel as if you are a full citizen uh, because of what your last name is or you know, where you feel like you're from. Um, and I think absolutely we need to be careful in how we speak about this so we don't, you know, we don't encourage those sorts of feelings and we don't encourage the sorts of attitudes that can lead to, uh, policies that disproportionately hurt people from those communities. So, thank you very much for bringing that up and letting me, letting me do that that spiel. Um, because, no, I think it's important. I mean, especially I think yeah. there's an instrumental value to it, right? Because um, exactly what you said about keeping nationality in contention is something that the party seeks to do itself. Um, so yes. by by playing into those narratives, we're actually in a way abetting the effort of of um, China instrumentalizing the diaspora, yes. which is one of your points. Um, but that's maybe a good segue to actually get into now the nuts and bolts of um, of party influence. I mean, if you've done a very helpful thing in your report by uh, giving us, you know, five five points to kind of structure your framework here. <laughs> so that yeah. makes my job easy as the host. Um, yeah. So I'm going to link to your report uh, in the show notes. So uh, listeners, if they do want to get uh, deeper into things, can read it for themselves. But I did want to offer you an opportunity to um, to go through your framework, which I actually think is a very helpful way to think about this topic more broadly. 
Um, yeah. So your first one is weaponizing China's economy. Um, and I think yes. that's an interesting one to talk about in early 2020, um, particularly as certain countries in Asia seek to sort of reshore business, uh, reduce their exposure to the Chinese mainland, and obviously something that Chinese leaders are concerned with preventing at the time. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit more about the ways in which China's weaponized its economy and maybe a few case studies that you think are, uh, are good exemplars of that. Yeah. And the, the thing about the sections, I got to give all credit for that goes to my boss, Laura Rosenberger, uh, Zach, uh, Zach Cooper, my other boss, and Jamie Fly, my former boss, uh, who were <laughs> this. I'm sure you know about this when you're starting a big project, like your first ideas versus what ends up coming out the other end are just like they barely even resemble each other because of all of the other help and input that other people have put into it. So uh, you having an easy structure to go off of is very much thanks to the effort of those people. Um, the weaponizing China's economy. Um, so the fundamental fact of the party's international rise is that uh, China has, by some measures, now the world's largest economy. Um, you know, people debate about whether or not PPP is an appropriate measure, but you know, according to some measures, China's economy is now larger than the United States. Um, and simply by itself, the size of this economy and its potential for future growth um, exerts a, a gravitational pull um, on the politics of other countries um, because of how it incentivizes uh, business people in other countries to deal with their governments and how it incentivizes governments to think about their foreign policy because of their domestic political constituencies. Um, and the party is fully aware of this dynamic. Um, and what we have seen um, is a tendency to use market access, to use the ability to do business in China or to trade with China um, as a way to, um, to punish, you know, punish people the party defines as enemies and reward people that it defines as friends, hence the, the title of the report, Friends and Enemies. Um, so just to, you know, give a few really, really classic examples. I mean, the, the, the sort of, um, the ur text for this was the, uh, when the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to a, um, a Chinese intellectual named Liu Xiaobo in, I think it was 2010, if I remember right. Um, and Liu Xiaobo was, um, you know, he was very active in the, the Tiananmen movement in 1989, spent a long time in prison afterwards, um, and then helped contribute to a document named Charter 08, or Charter 2008, that was a statement by a whole bunch of uh, Chinese intellectuals essentially supporting constitutional government in China in 2008. Um, and for his trouble, he was thrown into prison. Um, you know, he would spend the rest of his life there and um, died of cancer a couple of years ago. Um, probably was denied medical treatment towards the end. But in 2010, um, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee saw fit to award him the prize in absentia. And the, uh, the Chinese government, the party, um, proceeded to, you know, throw a hissy fit. Um, and it wasn't just, you know, uh, diplomatic demarches. It wasn't just mean words on paper. They more or less cut off exports of salmon from Norway to, uh, to China. 
and there's, you know, there's wonderful graphs showing how like over the next five or six years, the share of uh, the salmon import market in China went from being almost entirely Norway's to being a mix of Faroe Islands, Iceland, Sweden. Um, you know, Norway ended up losing by some estimates more than a billion dollars um, as a result of the decision by this uh, Nobel Peace Prize Committee, which is not a government decision. Like the Norway, Norwegian government didn't make that call. It was, you know, a committee appointed by people in the government, but ultimately they're independent. Um, as a result of that, um, you know, the Norwegian salmon industry was made to suffer. And, um, you know, about six or seven years later, the two countries came to more or less a detente um, on the issue. Uh, and relations between the two countries were repaired, but it was at the cost of uh, Norway, you know, denying the Dalai Lama a platform to speak inside their own country. Um, it was at the cost of toning down some of its previous activism and outspokenism on human rights. Um, and you know, this is just this is just one example. Um, you know, the report contains a lot more examples and there's a lot of examples that i just didn't have room to get into yeah um, no i mean another huge one that comes to mind is uh how south korea was treated after um accepting yep. the, the thad deployment that's one that comes to yep. mind immediately yeah and the, the really interesting thing about you know these these boycotts is like they'll, they'll make headlines for you know a few months or half a year um but like they go on even after they fall out of the headlines mm -hmm. like you know the salmon boycott went on for you know, the better part of a decade. Um, some elements of the fad boycott are still in place yeah. now, three or four years later. Um, so the, the party's got a long memory and holds a long grudge on this stuff. And it's it's gotten to the point where the, this is a calculus in every government's decision-making and how it deals with China, because the party has, has successfully communicated that there are costs to how you speak about China. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so I would love to do an entire episode about the idea of weaponizing the Chinese economy, but unfortunately, to get through the entire framework, <laughs> we're going to have to move yeah. forward. Uh, I'm just, yeah. I'm just, yeah, I'm just saying that not to, not to, you know, push you ahead rudely here or anything. No, um, no, it's, it's fine. Like any one of these characteristics could probably be a book. By oh itself. yeah, absolutely. Like, there's just, there's so much there. Right. Um. Anyways, your second point is asserting narrative dominance, which I think is again super timely to talk about in early 2020. I mean, uh, you know, we we heard a lot a few weeks ago about. China's mask diplomacy and China sort of, you know, saving the world with personal protective equipment, um, you know, mm. basically showing the Europeans that China was going to be their best friend. And, you know, things have gone a little back and forward there uh, with reports coming out that China's been demanding that European leaders first praise Beijing before actually making deliveries of uh, face masks and, and what have you. Um, but that's just one example uh, that that came to mind. But tell us a little bit about how the party seeks to uh, assert um, narrative dominance around the world, uh, particularly in democracies. Yeah, yeah. And sort of the, the, the way that I think about this particular characteristic is that, um, like, the party takes an inordinate interest in how other countries and people in other countries, particularly elites, um, how they talk about China, uh, how China is understood in other countries, um, the means through which China is understood. Um, I, I think it takes an interest in these things, you know, really to a much greater extent. Uh, than, for example, like the United States. I mean, uh, frankly, for the most part, like we don't really, we don't really care what other countries are are saying about us. You know, we get criticized uh, all the time, every day, all around the world, and you know, uh, 
until recently, that wasn't really a cause for, um, you know, uh, economic fisticuffs. Um, but the, you know, the party is a party is a little bit different on this. And I think that has a lot to do with kind of the, the Marxist Leninist heritage it has. Um, it, you know, it seeks narrative dominance inside its own country and it's built the world's most sophisticated censorship apparatus to do so the world's most sophisticated propaganda apparatus to shape how people think about their country and its place in the world uh, from the moment they start going to school. Um, you know, to varying degrees of success, Chinese people are not, you know, automatons, um, but it's, it is possible to, to set the boundaries of people's worldviews fairly successfully through these, through these efforts. And it's doing it increasingly to other countries. Um, and I, it kind of does it through two main channels, I think. One is through like positive, um, active propaganda and so this is stuff like the mass diplomacy you're talking about where you get like people's daily and china's daily china daily and global times like they send a photographer to the airport to take a picture with the uh the local you know the ambassador to the local country and the local officials and then they blast that out over their social media uh both at home and abroad um so that's that's one aspect and i tend to think that aspect is like not always super effective it's certainly not as effective as mm -hmm. the you know, Russia Today, RT, the stuff that Russia has built, where, you know, they're, they're, it's able to be really catchy and really popular and has a genuine audience um, in countries that are not Russia. Um, the, the place where I think the party is really, really effective um, in its quest for narrative dominance is um, seeking to suppress what I call adversarial narratives, um, you know, narratives that the party doesn't want people discussing or talking about or thinking. Uh, now, obviously, we you know we discuss these things all the time in Western societies and democratic societies. You and I are doing this right now, um, but there are many, many examples of the party primarily using its economic strength um, to suppress how certain topics are presented or whether they're presented. Um, and the classic example of this is Hollywood. Um, this is the one that I get into in some depth in the report. Um, you know, in, in 1997, Hollywood put out three movies that were fairly critical of the party. It was uh, Quindun, uh, which was a Martin Scorsese film about Dalai Lama, uh, Red Corner, Richard Gere as a businessman falsely accused inside of China, and Seven Years into Death with uh, Brad Pitt, which I think needs no further introduction. Mm -hmm. um, all three of those films were pulled from distribution inside of China, um, but not only the films, but all films belonging to those studios were all pulled from distribution inside of China. Um, and it was made really, really clear to all of the studios involved. And, you know, there's contemporary news sources. You can go back and find all this uh, really clear to all of the studios involved that uh, if they wished for the continued growth of their business inside of China, that this could no longer happen. Um, and this is around the same time as Disney, who was the studio that put out Quindun, uh, began its quest for a theme park inside of China. Um, you know, this is 1996, 1997. Um, and Shanghai Disney World would open, Disney World, Disneyland, I think it's Disneyland. Shanghai Disneyland would open eventually like 20 years later. Um, but this is also taking place in the context of WTO negotiations over China's accession to the organization. And a really important part of those negotiations is the access of Western films to the Chinese film market. Uh, so this is a really crucial point in time for Hollywood studios involvement in the Chinese market. 
Um, and, you know, in the course of putting this, this report together, uh, me and a research assistant actually went back and we looked at the top 50 films by box office for every year since then. Um, and not a single film in the top 50 box office since 1997 has had anything bad to say about China. Um, you know, there, there's been no film right. that put out any kind of narrative that the party thinks is objectionable. And actually in, in more recent years, you've seen movies like uh, Gravity, like The Martian, um, Iron Man 3, where it's presenting China and the party in a light more like what the party prefers, which is as kind of a benign partner for international cooperation. Um, and I think people just, we've sort of normalized this censorship of Hollywood, but it, it's really quite extraordinary when right. you think about it, that. Uh, the party has essentially converted, the party has managed to piggyback its messages on American soft power by weaponizing its economy. Um, and, and you think about like, the Soviet Union would have killed to be able to do this in the 1970s or the 1980s. Um, and so the, the, the party now has managed to accomplish things that uh, the Soviet Union never dreamed possible. Mm. Um, in the, the realm of suppressing messages that it doesn't like in other societies. Yeah, no, the gravity example is actually one of my favorite favorite ones because not only um, is the Chinese government presented as, like you said, a benign collaborator in saving Sandra Bullock um, from outer space, but um, the, you know, spoilers for gravity here, but the, the movie starts with an anti-satellite weapon test. Yep. Um, and China, the People's Liberation Army, was widely criticized for precisely such a test in 2007. And guess which country conducts the test as part of the narrative in gravity? It's Russia, um, which is actually notable for not having conducted a direct ascent anti-satellite weapon test against a live satellite target. So it's it's really, it's, it's a fascinating little twist on, on both sides in the narrative of China's presented as the savior and you know, even though we have a close real life analog to the event that kicks off the movie Gravity, um, it's it's not China that's responsible for that in the movie. Yeah, and it's it's I, I want to dwell on this one just a, a little bit longer because it's it's so it's so fascinating. I mean, that's that that's a, again like we're talking a lot about how Russia interferes in democracies, but this is really not a tool that Russia has available to it in the same way that China does. And you know, Hollywood's one example, but it it trickles down throughout the mechanisms that we use to create and distribute knowledge uh, related to China in our societies. Um, you know, and so a good example is that um, lots of times uh, university chairs or think tanks are funded by, uh, for example, wealthy business people or philanthropists, you know, philanthropists um, or companies. And, um, you know, if, if people like that, know that there is a cost to being associated with work that is critical of the party, then that's a powerful deterrent to, to funding that kind of work or funding that kind of study. Um, and it's also, it can be an incentive to fund work that does the opposite, or at the very least does not problematize our relationship with China. Um, and so you, it's, it's interesting to see how this, this economic gravity of the PRC can sort of um, warp the entire structure of the conversation on China throughout throughout democratic countries. Economic gravity. I like what you did there. 
Oh yeah. Um, all right. I, I, I mistakenly was funny. Yeah. So, all right. I'm going to, I'm going to, again, keep you moving here, um, through the framework. Cause we do have three other points to get through. And I know, yeah, sorry. I know, I mean, yeah, both of us are just falling into this, uh, thing where we want to talk about this stuff forever. Um, yeah. but uh, let's talk about point number three, which is uh, relying on elite intermediaries, which I think is a, an interesting point here. I think we've actually touched on this a little bit already. Um, but you want to expand on that a bit? Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of I'll go through this one, I think, a little bit more quickly. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about it already in that, that the people who are disproportionately the subject of party pressure are, you know, can people with wealth or power in other countries. Um, it's also the same, actually, inside of, inside of China, I think, to a degree that people don't really appreciate. Um, this is when you start hearing about the United Front um, in China, basically, like the United Front is... It's the, the tool and the set of philosophies that the party uses to, to make sure that, you know, the very tip top of Chinese society um, understands that the party's in charge and they will at least grudgingly do what the party asks of them uh, to advance its, uh, its, you know, its policy agenda. Um, and the so-called United Front Work Department uh, which is the part of the party whose job it is to operationalize this stuff um, actually has like, there's like literal sub bureaus of the department uh, that are named after the sections of elite society that the party targets. So there's like literally a bureau that's like intellectuals. Uh, there's a bureau that's based, basically it's business people. Uh, there's another bureau that's like uh, overseas Chinese. Um, and so like the party actually like names the sections of, Chinese society that are not the party uh, that it wants to bring under its umbrella and make sure that they're they're singing from the same song sheet as the party. Um, and as China's economy has grown, because all this comes back to China's economy uh, and become increasingly interconnected with other parts of the world, uh, these, these PRC societal elites um, are increasingly present in the political, economic, and intellectual lives of other countries. Um, and the party goes out of its way to make sure that these folks have an incentive um, to uh, support the party's policy objectives. And that can, in some cases, uh, lead to some concerning behavior. So, you know, Huawei is the example that I cite in the report. Um, there are really, really strong indications that Huawei has supported intelligence operations uh, by the PRC and European and other countries. Uh, really, really credible allegations. It's helped uh, democratically elected governments in Africa uh, censor and harass political foes. Um, really, And it can do all of this under the guise of a, a nominally private company uh, that's able to message other countries' publics via all the tools of corporate thought leadership, like marketing, advertising, editorials, lobbying. Um, and so this, this use of elite intermediaries gives the party a range of very, very powerful tools that, again, like the Soviet Union never really had available to itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely um, that's absolutely the case here. I think. Um, anyways, I'm going to keep us moving. Uh, yeah. Just in the interest of getting to uh, some of the more uh, interesting ones you have towards the end. Um, instrumentalizing the Chinese diaspora. We actually we hit on this at the beginning, um, but you know, I think I think you're right to emphasize um, how important this is. Um, I think I think this is one maybe talking about a little bit more because it manifests in similar but 
distinct ways in in i guess you know places like australia and new zealand and southeast asia europe um even even the united states um what are the main means by which or at least the most effective means by which you think the party uh, succeeds in instrumentalizing uh the chinese diaspora yeah and i i sort of want to emphasize here that like uh, of all these characteristics i think that this this one is uh, it's far and away the most insidious um of all of the uh, the other stuff that the party is doing um because like the party makes absolutely no bones about it that um you know it's targeting overseas chinese communities and it in you know many cases believes it's owed the loyalty of these communities that it's the job of these communities to contribute to china's national rejuvenation um like there there's not even really the conception of the notion that that nationality or identity could be separate from race um which is like a very 19th century worldview, mm-hmm. um, but it's one that the party espouses unabashedly. Um, and the, the party, the policies that come out of this um, lead, basically like lead the party to encourage like dual loyalty. Right. Um, like that, that, that's like actual party policy is like, we, we want you to hold dual loyalty when targeting overseas Chinese communities. Um, and these are communities that that have struggled literally for centuries with precisely that issue, that they are seen as holding dual loyalties within their societies. And they are subject to discrimination and racism um, as a result of that. You know, um, the, the most famous example of this in the United States is, uh, you know, Korematsu versus the United States, that upheld the right of the U.S. government uh, to hold American citizens of Japanese descent in concentration camps during World War II um, for no other reason than they were their families are from Japan. Um, you know, th- there's a real history of racism in these societies, and it's not just a history. It, it you know carries on today. There's a there's a um, study by Cardozo Law School finding that. You know, people of Asian descent, when they're subject to um, uh, subject to federal prosecution for a uh, federal trade espionage law, um, are more likely to be um, incorrectly prosecuted. They're more likely to be found innocent. They're more likely to be more harshly sentenced for the same crimes. Um, Like these communities are not just like making up these concerns out of thin air. Um, It's it's there's there's really good reasons for them to be worried about how the societies they live in will, will perceive them and treat them as a result of the, you know, the Chinese communist party's determination uh, to be the most powerful political entity in the world. Um, and so that's, it's, it's this incredibly difficult catch 22 um, that, you know, the way the party goes about doing this kind of stuff is through, um, you know, a range of, outreach organizations uh, that are sort of devoted to building connections with overseas communities. And uh, it's a very large and very well-resourced bureaucratic apparatus. You know, there's uh, in every embassy in a developed country, there are very well-staffed sections devoted to identifying, um, you know, scientific and technological um, workers of Chinese descent in the country who might have um, valuable something valuable to contribute 
to the national rejuvenation of the homeland um, and trying to build connections with those people and incentivizing those people um, to, to work with um, Chinese researchers and work for China. Um, you know, there's a number of um, sort of, we'll call them uh, ancestral um, organizations that are dedicated to, you know, keeping up connections between people from a particular part of China um, who have gone to other countries. So like people from Guangzhou or people from Fujian or people from even particular cities in these provinces. Um, and these are organizations that in many cases are directly overseen by the United Front Work Party. Right. Or sorry, United Front Work Department. Um, you know, again, this is one where we could go on forever and ever, but it's just, it's a super, super insidious thing the party does because, you know, they don't care about how it affects societal cohesion in other countries and trying to combat it. Like it is almost always going to look racist because the people that you're, the people that you're, you're, you're going after will almost always have Chinese last names and be from China. Yeah, no, uh, so it's been a big problem it, with uh, especially like uh, counterintelligence operations in the United States. You look at um, the series of indictments that have been coming out of DOJ and um, you just see this pattern. Um, and obviously, like you said, it's a catch-22 because they are, you know, there is a real need to do counterintelligence against the Ministry of State Security in China. Uh, but when it turns out that many of the assets that are being recruited in the United States and elsewhere um, are individuals of Chinese ethnicity that may or may not have any links to the party or even have relatives in mainland China, um, it just becomes this very insidious issue. I mean, it pollutes the whole notion of people-to-people -people exchange with China in general. I mean, you can look yeah. at the debate that just you know Tom Cotton kicked off uh, of, of all people a few weeks, uh, uh, a few days ago, on uh, Chinese students coming to the United States, um, and you're just reading what people are saying about that issue, and you know, it's it's. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I can see, I can see why there is a debate here. But like you said, I mean, this one is definitely, I think, the most difficult one for. Um, I mean, liberal democratic states that really prize this idea of the notion of citizenship as something equitable and available to all people equally. Um, this is, I think, the the very tool of uh, Chinese overseas in, um, influence that really cuts at that. Yeah, you. I mean, you've hit it right on the head there. It's 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 weaponizing the the precisely the notion in liberal democracies that everybody should be treated equally and nobody should be nobody should fall under suspicion because of where their family is from or what the color of their skin is. Um, and it's, 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 it's poisoning the debate precisely because those people are targeted because of where they're from mm -hmm. by the party. Um, and I don't, I, I don't really think we have a good handle right now on how to do this right without being, uh, frankly, without being racist or causing undue alarm among yeah. communities that are affected by this. We're, we're in very early days of this conversation. All right. Um, so that brings us to, um, I think, the final point in your framework, um, which we've we've actually hit on this on a few previous episodes of podcast that listeners might be familiar with, where we were talking about um, the Belt and Road Initiative and uh, China's interest in exporting its model overseas. But uh, this is the notion of uh, embedding authoritarian control. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about what exactly that means in the context of your report, Matt? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of debate over whether China um, is seeking to export authoritarianism intentionally. Um, there's some very, very smart people arguing both sides of the case. Um, you know, Jessica Chen Weiss's work, for example, is very persuasive in arguing that um, although we may be seeing the export of authoritarianism, that is not necessarily as a as the result of a conscious policy goal on the party's part. Um, I, I've sort of chosen to ally that debate a little bit and just say that, you know, well, we're seeing it. Um, 
So we need to kind of grapple with the fact that that's happening and, and what do we do about it? Um, this comes about, I think, mostly as a consequence of the party's way of doing business, which is simply that of an authoritarian party. I mean, um, the party is itself very secretive. When people join up, they, they sign an oath, sorry, they, they swear an oath uh, to protect the party's secrets. Um, the party's ultimate control of Chinese society and exemption from uh, the constitution and Chinese law is written into the constitution itself. Um, the party disciplines its members through a parallel shadow legal system um, that operates above and outside the pur purview of the, country, the country's courts. That's been the case for you know, many, many years now. Um, so I don't think it's, I don't think it's an enormous, oh, and also, you know, corruption and bribery are part and parcel of how influence is, uh, is accumulated and, uh, exercised inside of the, the party's political system in China. So, I mean, I don't think we should be like hugely shocked when we see that, um, you know, both the Chinese government itself and entities that have, have grown up inside the system um abide by these sorts of norms when they begin to uh, establish themselves outside of china um a really really great example of this i mean th there's this absolutely insane story by the wall street journal um i guess it's about a year and a half ago now um it's just it always I, it always blows my mind that more people don't know about this story but essentially, to, to boil down a fairly complex case, um, what was then the government of Malaysia, and I can't remember the name of the prime minister anymore, I'm sure you do, the previous Anaja Brazak? Yeah. Yes, that's correct, yes. Um, his government was, uh, was in a little bit of trouble because of its creation of uh, a development fund called 1MTV that it mm -hmm. turned out that it was using essentially as a slush fund. Um, at the time all of this was going on, Malaysia was also negotiating with China for um, uh, basically to sign on to some really, really large Belt and Road infrastructure projects. There was going to be a rail line running up the, the east side of the country's sort of main peninsula, a couple of other really big projects. Um, and while this is going on, uh, the Wall Street Journal is doing a lot of really good groundbreaking reporting on all of the shenanigans with uh, with one MDB and you know giving the the Malaysian government a lot of headaches. Um, this is all about a year before uh, the elections that eventually would would turn this government out of office. So with this set of circumstances, um, a couple of very senior PRC officials. Um, show up for negotiations with the Malaysian government and say, all right, we'll make you guys a deal. Uh, we have established full operational surveillance, this is their phrase, full operational surveillance of the Wall Street Journal's reporters and offices in Hong Kong who are doing this reporting on 1MDB. So we got their phones tapped, we're reading their email, following them around, we're digging through their trash. You know, they, they can't, they can't let a peep out with us knowing who that peep is let out to. We will give you the results of this take and help you identify who inside the Malaysian government is talking to the Wall Street Journal so you can do what is necessary. Again, their words. Um, in exchange for us giving you the results of us spying on the Wall Street Journal reporters in Hong Kong, 
we're going to want you to sign on to uh, not only do we want you to do the current BRI projects, but we want you to do more BRI projects and we want them to be priced at above market rates. So essentially we want to make sure that the amount of squeeze we get out of this is 20 or 30% more than we're already talking about. At the same time, we will help pay down some of the debt that you are unable to pay on one MDV, and we will put pressure on the US Department of Justice to cease their investigation of what's going on with one MDV, because there was, you know, at the time, uh, a large DOJ investigation of what was going on that eventually would uh, prosecute a number of people. Um, and the officials from the PRC who made this offer said that they had they were making this offer with the knowledge and the explicit approval of the two most powerful people in China, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, the excuse me, the premier. Um, the story is insane. It's insane. Um, it's incentivizing a democratically elected government uh, both to be very corrupt, to be secretive, to be non-transparent, uh, and to enjoy the fruits of spying on members of the free press. Um, and the amounts that we're talking about in this case are billions and billions and billions of dollars. Um, I think it's a fantastic example of some of the behavior we're now seeing China engage in around the world. And it's still, it, it goes back again to the potency of China's economic interconnectedness with the rest of the world, that having these kind of financial and economic tools gives the party um, a number of, of really potent options to try to shape how other states behave. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think the 1MDB example is a really good one. I mean, also in general, around Southeast Asia, the 1MDB case um, was really a wake-up call. Um, I mean, not a wake-up call for many governments, I guess, who continue to see advantages to uh, behaving in the ways that you described, but uh, certainly for, I think, many civil society organizations and uh, journalists in the area, uh, just the extents to which um, China can go to um, in in seeking influence um, in many of these places. Yeah, but yeah. Um, we are getting short on time. In fact, we're over <laughs> I'm time. Sorry, but uh, I, no, 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 this, I, been, no, this I, has really been fascinating. So this no, is I, I could talk, talk all day, every day about this. It's just there's so much to so much to talk about. Yeah. Um, no, I, I thought I thought this was a very helpful um, tour de force of understanding the notion of. Um, party influence um, around the world and the means by which the party uh, tries to seek influence. Um, Matt, uh, thanks a lot for joining me. Um, I really hope to have you back on, uh, particularly when we do have a news peg um, to talk about some of these topics, maybe in a little bit more, um, a little bit more of a detailed way. But thanks a lot for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, no worries, Ankit. And, uh, you know, it would be a privilege to come back and talk with you. I love, love the work that you do, love the work that Diplomat does. So anytime, I'm always happy. Thank you for those kind words. And uh, yeah, hope to have you on soon. Thanks. Take care. All right. And for our listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, TuneIn, any other number of podcast providers out there. We're pretty widely accessible. And finally, if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you'd go ahead and do that. And finally, before we close, a note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of the Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, the Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. 
Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com.